Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Neil Kent about his new book, Crimea, A History, which is put out in the UK by Hearst and in the United States by Oxford University Press. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for asking me. Before we get going, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about your background. Yes, um, I began life academically, having studied at uh, the College of William and Mary uh, in the United States, in Virginia, and also then um, at the University of Cambridge, where I did a combination of the two of history and history of art. And uh, then I became attached to the Scott Polar Research Institute because I took a very keen interest in history, culture, society, uh, and art in the Nordic countries, and then more widely in the Arctic. And therefore, my initial academic focus was Scandinavia, and I learned all the various languages. And secondly, um, Russia. And I traveled extensively throughout Europe, throughout uh, Russia and Ukraine, Crimea, and I'm fascinated by these areas, also by their languages, and the mythology that links to languages. Um, I can't profess to speak them all. I suppose I can lecture fluently in about 11, but I can um, get by to some degree in another 20 odd. And uh, I have to say, unfortunately, languages to me have become a bit of a drug. I really can't stop learning them. (laughs) My most recent languages that I'm focusing on uh, intensively are Turkish, uh, also Ottoman Turkish, and um, Hungarian. That's interesting. But anyways, what we're here to do today is talk about your new book, uh, Crimea. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more a background on why you wrote the book and what you're attempting to do in the book. Well, I was a professor of history in St. Petersburg, off and on for 10 years, uh, still based in Cambridge, but nonetheless active in, uh, as a professor full-time in St. Petersburg. And um, one spring in uh, 2006, I decided to, with a a friend, to travel south and travel all around Ukraine and all around Crimea. Now, when I went there in 2006, I adored both Crimea and Ukraine and loved traveling there. But it struck me that... um, there were great problems in Crimea in 2006. And so when I returned home to London, I then uh, contacted one of my publishers in the hopes that I might write a history of Crimea because I saw there wasn't a book out available, not only in English on Crimea, but in Russian uh, or Ukrainian either. And so um, I went around to them and also I said, 
at the time in my book proposal that I thought around 2014 there would probably be a lot of um, military action in the area. <laughs> wow. Now, you might say, why did I think that? Well, the reasons why I thought that were, first of all, general discontent in Crimea with um, belonging to Ukraine. People who I encountered ha gave the impression that they felt they were a Cinderella within Ukraine. As it, you know, and that Ukraine mm -hmm. didn't look at Crimea as really an integral part, but slightly um, in, uh, more as a, um, a stepchild. Then also bearing in mind that Russia's most important naval base was uh, obviously and still is um, at uh, Sevastopol, I then was of the opinion that um, things would turn pear-shaped. At the time, though, none of the publishers were interested. They said this might happen, but it was too peripheral. And in fact, I was given a contract on uh, two other books. One was a book on the Sami peoples, which I then published. It's now out. And I'm, I'm very happy to say won some academic uh, awards. And the other, um, which I'm now working again on, is um, a history of Denmark and also a book um, which I'm just beginning on a history of the Russian Orthodox Church, which I find a fascinating subject. But to return to the subject of Crimea, nobody was interested. Well, when all these problems started uh, erupting in Maidan, in Kiev, uh, a few years ago, um, I took the occasion of walking by one of the publishers to go in and say, I told you so. <laughs> on that occasion, they wouldn't let me leave until I'd signed a contract to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that's an interesting story. I, I've had not, not similar situations, but publishers, if they think, you know, it's the bottom line, but they think the public is interested and can sell right away. But it sounds like you were way ahead of the curve on, on the Crimea. And as far as our for our listeners, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about uh, the Crimean geography. I mean, I think a good place to start, and you start with the book, is about how geography uh, plays a role in how the Crimea becomes an important part of uh, of history. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yes, well, it's, uh, Crimea is uh, fascinating because when you go to the northern parts of Crimea and then above, you have what seem like endless steppes, open lands which historically were full of nomadic peoples. But Crimea itself, despite being relatively small uh, as a peninsula, has an immense range of geography. So you have semi-tropical southern coastline, uh, rather high mountains above, and then a, a steppe hinterland. Now, the mountains historically served as a place of refuge um, for peoples. So you had all manner of ethnic groups through the centuries. More recently, perhaps some of the most um, far-flung um, are Koreans, but historically you had uh, various uh, groups of uh, Jews, Greeks, Armenians, um, all of whom went back, you know, a, a thousand, fifteen hundred years and more. And of course, too, for Crimea, you have, um, through its geography, a great mythology. Everybody from Tatars to Greeks to Nazi Germans 
um, based some form of mythology on the peninsula to justify what they were doing and the vision they had for the future. And a lot of that, those ethnic groups, um, were settled there in some way linked to the geography, whether it was mountainous, where they could seek refuge, or the coasts where they could do trading. So yeah, one of the things that struck me too was the diversity of of the of the peninsula, and I was what I mean from the Goths to very. I, I wonder if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right. The the Cariite Jews, is that is that how you pronounce them? Yes, they're not. I mean, this is a good question. Are the uh, they they are actually a Tatar people? Now, to what degree the Jewish is? Um, <laughs> A rather controversial subject. Hitler himself said they were Aryans, not Jews. On the other hand, in the post-war, uh, Second World War era, uh, it, they have sought uh, to be considered Jews for the purpose of immigration to Israel. Um, they use a Tartar language, which is very closely related to Turkish, but in their liturgical beliefs, uh, they use Hebrew. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't know much about them, yeah. but it's so it's. Um, I I don't know whether I would say they tend to be highly Old Testament based, but to uh, again, to what degree, um, in terms of DNA or uh, ethnicity, genetically, they are related to Jews. It's difficult to say. You have to remember too that in the Middle Ages in Russia, when there were virtually no Jews, there was a Judaizing tradition which went back to, uh, uh, the, let's say, the um, 12, 1300s, when people wanted to refocus on certain Old Testament traditions uh, and the mosaic, traditions of the Mosaic law. And um, that created great ructions in, the, uh, in orthodoxy, that is Christian orthodoxy, in Rus and then later in uh, early modern Russia and beyond. Some of these Karaites also ended, were invited in the Middle Ages to live in Lithuania, where they were elevated to the nobility and are still to be found to this day, um, not um, very far out of um, the capital there, in Traktir. Wow. Didn't, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yes, very interesting people uh, who, as I say, use um, a, a Tartar language as their everyday language. Yes, and it, it, there's all sorts of snippets like this in the book about interesting, about the diversity of the Crimean Peninsula from, from Gothic settlements to Armenians to this long history with the Genoese using it as a trading post. It's, it's a very fascinating history that we can't do justice to. Uh, in a short interview like this, but I was wondering if you could tell us about how the Crimean Peninsula was influenced and shaped by the Mongol invasions. Well, the Crimean Peninsula was basically inhabited by Genoese, there were Ar Armenians, there were uh, descendants of ancient Greeks, a whole range of um, peoples. Uh, initially, when it came, it was uh, it was devastating, and uh, the original Mongol invasion pulled back. But eventually, during the course of the middle of the 15th century, 
the Tartars, as they had by then come to be known, these various nomadic people speaking a Turkic, various Turkic languages. Uh, there were also the Nogai Tartars who lived to the north on the steppes. And uh, gradually they assumed hegemony over Crimea. And the Armenians uh, and all these various other peoples tended to um, consolidate themselves in various uh, places. Armenians tended to be in Theodosia. And of course, there was Sudak, the Genoese uh, fortress. But hegemony was established um, in the fullest of time, Bakshi Sarai, which was the center of the Tartar Khanate. Now, the interesting thing about the Tartars were the um, Khans of Crimea always came from one city of Girai. And I have to say, when my book launch took place, I was very privileged to have the heir to the Tartar throne, another member of the Girai family, at the book launch with other Tartars. Wow. They trace it all the way up till now. It's oh, yes. They, they remain. Well, you see, what happened was in 1783, the then Carter Tan invited Catherine the Great and Russia to assume sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the reasons they did that was there were uh, that particular Khan had competitors in his own family for the throne. And also the Ottomans were strengthening themselves vis-a-vis Crimea. Now, historically, in the Muslim world, the only two equal powers in terms of status were the Sultan of Crimea, sorry, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, and um, the Khan of Crimea. Now, the Sultan obviously was Caliph, whereas the Tartar Khan was directly descended from Genghis Khan. So it meant that they both had to be prayed for, in a certain sense, equally. Now, sometimes the Sultan's name came first in prayers, certainly in Constantinople, <laughs> um, and sometimes in Crimea, uh, it was the Khan. But uh, anyway, in 1783, Catherine the Great um, was invited to assume sovereignty. He, or, the Khan had already known her and had stayed, visited her in St. Petersburg as her guest previously. He was a young man. And thereafter, the Tartars nobility were confirmed in their noble status within the Russian Empire and went on to marry into the highest reaches of the Russian nobility. Wow. Now, in the second half of the 19th century, a lot of Tartars fled after the Crimean wars because some of them have sided with the Ottomans, particularly amongst the, uh, uh, the Karait and others from Ipatoria, but other ones completely sided with the uh, Imperial Russian forces. Their main uh, trials and tribulations didn't occur during the period of the Russian Empire, it occurred during the early 1920s when Bela Kuhn, the Hungarian Bolshevik, um, became a de facto uh, ruler in uh, Crimea and uh, oversaw the brutal massacre of uh, the, not only the Tartan nobility, but any nobility or so-called bourgeois classes he found in Crimea.
Yeah, that's an interesting part of the book. I mean, we'll say more about that in a little bit. But what I found interesting about the stuff that you've just addressed is this kind of ambiguous relationship between the Tatar Khanate and the Ottoman Empire and how the Tartars seemingly were a big part of all this history of the era, whether it's with the, the, the entering debates about Ukrainian identity or its relationship with Poland, Lithuania, that it was a very complex history that the Tartars were a part of. And I was wondering if you could say any, uh, a little bit more about where the Crimea plays in this role of, of this history during this time period. I know this is a broad question from roughly, you know, the 1600s to, you know, the annexation in 1783. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. The um, relationship to Tartars, uh, to Russia, um, was not merely as a thorn in the Russian flesh. It was far worse. The reason being that um, the Tartars more than once threatened Moscow and mm -hmm. even, um, you know, captured its periphery. And the Tartars, some of the Tartars' principal economic activity were slaving. Now, the word in English, slave, comes from the word Slav. And Slavs, particularly blonde, blue-eyed Slavs, who were big as men and uh, attractive as ladies, <laughs> were highly sought after throughout the Ottoman Empire. This did not prevent also, it must be said, the Gen Christian Genoese from dealing in them as slaves, because the Genoese were, of course, traders. But at the end of the day, Rus in the beginning, and then Russia, as it was um, transmogrified into, was terrified of Tatar invasion. Now, of course, uh, most of Russia, except for uh, Novgorod and the far northwest, were captured by the Mongols. It has to be said, though, that the so-called Mongol yoke in Russia and Rus was not always perceived as such. You have to remember, for example, that the great Russian saint and hero, Alexander Nevsky, defeated the Baltic Germans, the Teutonic mm -hmm. Knights, with the aid of the Mongols. He was allied to the Mongols. So yeah. the Mongols also, it can be said, particularly with respect to Moscow, enabled Moscow to strengthen at the cost of other principalities. And uh, it meant that, for example, tribute to be paid for centuries to the um, Mongols, to the Tatars, had to go through, were collected by uh, Moscovites. And that, whilst it also brought funds into the Tatars, that enriched Moscow and enabled Moscovites to strengthen their power until finally mm -hmm. in the course of the 15th century, they declared themselves independent of the Tatar yoke, so-called. Yeah, and it also I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up many of those points, and it gets it gets wrapped into the the, the Russian Empire's rise uh, with the Cossacks, and the Cossacks uh, are used are given in part of this game. I don't know if you want to call it a great game of diplomacy to deal with the Russian Empire and Poland, Lithuania, and the Tatars. It seemed to be a lot of shifting alliances. I think you may even use that term oh. between between the Cossacks and the Russians and the Tatars and the Poles, and it's just it's a very complex uh, subject. Very interesting to absolutely. read. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. I mean, the Cossacks have recently been revived in Russia as the backbone of, in, in a certain sense, an elite military guard. But at the same time, historically speaking, one only has to look at the Tchaikovsky opera Mazepa. This uh, wonderful opera takes as its theme a Cossack 
in the 17th century who switches alliances. Now, Cossacks, by definition, were people who settled on the frontier lands between the Ottomans, the Tartars, and um, the Russians and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And so whilst normally their allegiance immediately around Crimea, because they were Orthodox, tended to be with Russia, that was not always the case. Sometimes they even sided with the uh, Muslim Tartars against Russia. Mm. And we equally have to remember that in these days, there was no Ukrainian state. The Ukrainian state was created in the 20th century in the wake of the Great War, the First World War. What is now called Ukraine was belonged to parts of it to the Ottoman Empire, parts of it to um, uh, Crimea, parts of it to Russia and Rus, parts of it to the Poland, Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth, and one could even say parts of it um, to Romania and um, also to um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So it was very much a, a part of the world in which not only the Cossacks, but lots of other people had shifting alliances and which was multi-ethnic and multi-religious. There was historically no Ukrainian people. There wasn't even historically a Ukrainian language or a Russian language. There was a Slavic language which were divided up, but you can say there were different languages over the years, they became more and more distinct. Um, but I, I read a fascinating book on um, Eastern and Central European languages. And the author, a Polish academic, made the point that the concept of Polishness before the middle of the 19th century only was used with respect to the Polish nobility. It was only later in the course of the 19th mm. century that the idea gripped um, many people in that who wanted independence from Russia, Germany and Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire to have create an independent Poland. In the future, Polish peasants and Jews and other Slavic peoples and Germans because it had to be included in the concept Pole. And therefore, everyone had, had to begin to speak an established Polish language. But again, according to this academic in Poland, a Pole himself, people, uh, in, in the intellectuals of Poland only thought of the Polish nobility as Poles. And so relating that to Crimea and Ukraine, um, if you were to talk to someone like Gogol and question his Russian identity, the fact that he also lived in what is today Ukraine and used the local dialect and painted these wonderful um, theatrical pieces and short stories of um, local people did not in any way take away from the fact that he was Russian as well and deeply devout Russian Orthodox. Yeah, this is a minefield. I mean, you've raised so many interesting points there. I, I mean, I can't get into all of them, but I, like I was telling you in the pre-interview, my trip to the Ukrainian National Museum, like what you just said would basically, I would, and I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating, would start a fight. 
I mean, they literally would take so much offense to that. I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong, but I'm just uh, to, to point out to our listeners that there is a huge debate about the create Ukrainian national identity raised by uh, these issues and the place of, of, of the Crimean Peninsula as center of this. So it's 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 very it's very interesting and interesting stuff. Uh, and the Cossacks too are interesting because the Ukrainians, at least from what I saw at the Ukrainian Museum. That's central. That they think of the Cossacks as Ukrainian, whereas that's you know certainly a debatable. Uh, I know Cossack myself who are deeply committed. They live in Kiev. They were born in Kiev. They speak a local dialect, and they're deeply um, uh, committed to uh, Ukrainian identity as being part of Russia. Now, yeah. not coming down and saying I think uh, Ukraine should be a part of Russia. On the contrary, what I'm saying is the, if the majority of people in Ukraine want to be an independent country, they should be. But one has to realize at the same time uh, that people, there are people living in Kiev who identify socially, culturally, patriotically with Russia. There are others mm. who identify, identify with Ukraine. There were also quite a number previously in, in our own lifetime who identified with Poland and with Romania. Yeah. So it's quite a fraught area. Um, yeah. I have no wish to impose any <laughs> solution on this. It's not my, they're not my countries and I have no right to, to do so. I only want to make people aware that, that, uh, that each of these ethnic groups has its own values, its own mythology, and um, it, whereas in England, for example, uh, and in, or the United Kingdom, it, res, uh, it expresses itself uh, in relatively benign forms of, for example, in Wales, the use of the Welsh language and uh, in parts of West of England, Morris dancing and uh, flying <laughs> the flag of, King, uh, of St. George. Um, in Ukraine, in Poland, in Russia, in Turkey, because these are all frontier lands, almost one could say volcanic um, or earthquake fault lines, people feel threatened. And therefore, when people feel threatened and they can look back to their recent history and talk about in their own families uh, victims of ma mass murder, um, it makes them very on edge. And some mm. of these people can then opt for violent solutions. Now, all of these people, uh, those who call themselves Ukrainian nationalists, those who call themselves um, Russian nationalists, those who call themselves Tatar nationalists, all of them have family members who have suffered um, in the wars of the 20th century and 19th century. And therefore, yeah. they don't forget it and they have their own access to grind. Now, how you create a peaceful uh, harmony in which each of these groups have some measure of respect is the great challenge of our times. Yeah, I mean, this is very pivotal points. Or you made a, a pivotal points for our listeners, and it's, it's definitely worth thinking about and considering. And we'll come back to it, I think, near the end of the interview. But one of the things this book does particularly well is that it, and I don't want to, you can say as much or as, as little about it as you want, is it connects Crimean history to art, to architecture, to literature, to, to bring out a, a, not just straight political and economic history, which I think 
there's a benefit to the book and benefit for our readers. But beyond, even once again, you can say as much or as little about that as you want. Uh, one of the defining moments of the book and of Crimean history, in, in some ways, and perhaps some ways not, is the Crimean War. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about where the Crimean War fits into your uh, story. Well, I think the Crimean War has a lot of relevance to us today. Because in the Crimean War, you had the Western Allies and Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, in opposition to Russia, and the flashpoint was Crimea. I see a lot of similarities with the present day, in the sense that the war took place because Russia, literally, in a way, the West even then was far more secularized than Russia. And the, when Russia said it had a keen interest in defending the Christians of the Ottoman Empire, it meant it. But the West were not that naive, they felt. They felt Russia's real interest. And I have to say, I don't think that was the case, although fully, although there was an element in it, they were afraid that Russia would use its position to extend into the Indian subcontinent, of course, Afghanistan, uh, develop a sphere of interest in Iran, and uh, get involved in the Middle East. And neither England nor France, and certainly not the Ottoman Empire, um, who had lost so much land at the expense of Russia, wanted that. And so, uh, in a way of preventing further Russian inroads, whether for religious reasons or for geopolitical reasons, the war erupted. Now, interestingly, Queen Victoria and Prime Minister Aberdeen did not want war. But the Times newspaper was immensely influential. And people like Palmerston and others had drummed up such a hostility to Russia <laughs> that the public literally started craving for war. And there was one benefit because Ireland had suffered enormously through the famous potato famines, where huge numbers of people died. And it should be mentioned that a significant proportion of the British soldiers fighting in Crimea, in the Crimean War, came from Ireland because they needed the work, they needed the food. Now, the tragedy was that at the end of the war, when all of the powers had big celebrations in Paris to celebrate the peace from Russia, from the Ottoman Empire, um, it has to be said that um, one of the celebrations involved the Ottoman Sultan and his uh, wives from the harem appearing in Western style uh, <laughs> at some of these uh, balls, um, nothing had changed. So with almost a million people dead as a result of the Crimean War, it was really a status quo. And so we should bear that in mind today with respect to Ukraine in Crimea what exactly are, is the world getting involved in there? 
does the world really understand what's happening and what benefits will come of it? Um, yeah, I, I, that's a, that is a pertinent question. And I often wonder that, too. Uh, I mean, just I mean, I'm sure you follow it. The U.S. political dialogue by itself raises questions of how much people actually know about the region and have understand the history and cultures. So that's always that's always an issue. But what, another thing that comes out from from this from chapter seven in particular and, and other chapters as well is the issue of Tatar identity and where the Tatars saw themselves as being part of the Russian Empire. I was wondering you could say a bit more about how the Tatars saw themselves as a people and perhaps a nation during the late eighteen hundreds into the twentieth century. Well, I have to say, it's there is a mythology that there is one Tatar identity mm. and belief. The Tatars historically are composed of different uh, clans, different groupings. There were Tatars of the nobility, Tatars um, who were uh, incredibly uh, impoverished um, farm laborers. There was no unified Tatars. There were Tatars who gave down their life for the Tsar in the Crimean War. In other Tatars who sided with the Turks. In the communist period, there were Tatars who became ardent communists, and Tatars who were white Russians fighting against them. And uh, like the clan of Girai, who were the Khans, immigrated to England, where they married into the English nobility. Then you had, um, in more modern times, for example, um, there are Tatars who are very keen on Russian uh, sovereignty being reestablished in Crimea after, for the first time since um, 1954. And then there are Tatars who violently oppose um, Russian uh, sovereignty. Now, even on the, in the Second World War, one has to say, and it's a reality, however unpleasant, that many young Tatar men the Tatars, having been declared Aryans by Hitler, did assist the SS in rounding up Jews and um, assisting the Nazi regime. Having said that, though, there were other Tatars who won awards as heroes of the Soviet Union fighting the Nazis. Now, fewer Tatars were supportive of Soviet hegemony in Crimea than possibly supported the occupying Nazi forces, which is one reason why when uh, the Soviets re-established uh, hegemony in Crimea towards the end of the war in 44 and so on, they had the deportation. Their goal was, uh, it was a very brutal deportation with thousands and thousands of people dying in the process. But uh, one element of that deportation was to remove bodies of people, however brutally, who uh, of whom significant numbers had assisted the enemies of the Soviet Union. And you have to remember, Britain and France were allied to the Soviet Union. Now, the fact that many Ukrainians, and I'm not talking about now in Crimea, where they have always been a relative minority, but in, in uh, mainland uh, Ukraine, many Ukrainians were not Nazis, they, but they hated the communists. And to them, 
the Soviet Union was more of an enemy than um, the Axis powers. So it's a very complicated and fraught area. What is, I might be a hero to a Ukrainian nationalist would not be necessarily a hero to a modern Russian or an Israeli whose ancestors were annihilated in Ukraine uh, by the Nazis and those Ukrainians and others who assisted them. Yeah, and it, it's, those are all good points. And it raises the issue of what uh, the place of Ukraine, or excuse me, not Ukraine, the Crimean Peninsula in the first and Second World Wars. I mean, you devote a lot of attention to these in the chapter, and we, you can't do justice to all of it in a short interview like this. But it seems like the Crimea was right in the center of all these debates about Soviet power, the Reds and the Whites. Uh, the Germans see it as a strategically important place in both wars, especially the Second World War. So, I mean, you've, you've addressed some of these issues, but I was wondering if you could say a bit more about where the Crimean Peninsula fits into this the story of the World Wars in the 20th century. Well, the First World War, the Crimea was not uh, did not have a major role. The Turks had bombarded Russian ships, uh, Sebastopol and so on, um, at the start of the war, but Crimea was left relatively alone during it. In fact... Uh, the Dowager Empress of Russia, Tsar Nicholas II's mother, fled to Crimea and was mm. only removed after the war when a, the British uh, vessel Marlborough took her away with lots of other members of the nobility. And she eventually made her way to Constantinople, Malta, England, to her sister, the Queen Mother here, and then uh, to her native Denmark, where she eventually died later in the 1920s. Once the Bolsheviks came into Crimea during the uh, Civil War, Crimea heated up, as it were. Really, mm. it was only in the Second World War that it became uh, a crucial area of uh, Nazi interest and then occupation. And they tried to establish what they called a, a, a sort of new Gothia there. Yeah, yeah, seeing it as an ancient German homeland. But of course, in pragmatic terms, what they really wanted was to be near to the oil reserves of the, um, you know, round about the Caucasus in the Middle East. Yeah, you're, you're right. And it's, it's it's an interesting point about how the German, Hitler drew on his own mythology about the Gothic, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, immigrations that had taken place in, you know, um, medieval times to, to justify that. But what have also caught my attention in, in, this, in these chapters is how uh, Crimea ended up as part of the uh, – it didn't become part of the Ukraine during the, and during the, during the 20s and 30s, uh, and then eventually will become part of the Ukraine. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how the Crimean Peninsula ended up being part of the Ukraine. The, it wasn't the medieval period the Germans looked back to with the Goths. It was the um, millennium previously – um, yes. Just after, you know, the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire and the great nomadic migrations of peoples, of Germanic peoples, that is what they look back as sort of the great um, uh, um, Ur homeland of the Germans. And of course, there were uh, uh, pseudo research teams that went out in the 30s and tried to see whether the Germans actually came from Tibet. So it was quite <laughs> complicated mythology. 
But um, uh, basically, you, uh, Crimea was part of an area called New Russia from 1783. That was the whole swathe of territory which was incorporated into Russia, either by conquest or by transfer through invitation, as in the case of Crimea. And that became a great province of New Russia. Um, and it's one of its leading uh, governors was uh, Prince Vorontsov. Now, the Vorontsov family intermarried with the families of the Earl of Pembroke in England and went on to um, uh, now there are many descendants in England. But uh, to go back to Crimea's, Crimea's status historically, it was part of New Russia. But as time went on, uh, I mean, it was uh, the Soviet Union was highly centralized. And before from the establishment of the Soviet Union until 1954, Crimea was not a part of Ukraine. It, there is a dispute to what degree it was Malenkov as head of the party, or later Khrushchev, a few months later as premier, to what part, who was the key in the role of transferring it to, crime, uh, to Ukraine? Whoever it was, whether it was the one or, what, or whether it was the other, it was transferred to Ukraine for a variety of reasons. And I might also add, it was not fully integrated, it remained technically an autonomous republic. Mm -hmm. So it always had its, its own identity. Um, one of the reasons it was said was because that if it was Khrushchev, that Khrushchev wanted to uh, smarten his image, having been involved <laughs> in the deaths of millions of Ukrainians through the um, this great period of famine, which it was said uh, was inflicted on the Ukrainian peoples to get rid of their independently minded peasantry and make them more docile to the Soviet system. But there were other practical reasons. The Soviet state was um, run from Moscow. If it was then transferred to Ukraine, it also, um, there was an element of how funds were transferred to different parts of the empire, what industrial and agricultural uh, um, new uh, endeavors were going to take place in Crimea. And the idea was if some of them failed, they could blame Kiev, and not Moscow itself. So it, it's a bit of a complicated scenario to uh, extract all the reasons of why Crimea was given to, uh, uh, under, to the authority of Kiev. Now, in 1991, after the, in, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in Moscow, Ukraine was still technically, uh, had broken away from uh, the rest of the Soviet Union, but it was still a communist country. And despite uh, a local referendum held in Crimea, which voted to be independent, join Russia, the Kiev government decided not to pursue that. And Yeltsin, who at the time was coming into power, had other fish to fry. He was not really interested in these uh, matters. Of course, you have to remember, Ukraine had belonged to Russia since 1654, what is now Ukraine, or most of it. That is the parts east of what formerly belonged to Poland, 
Lithuania. So the idea that he was giving it to, that Khrushchev had been giving it, or Malenkov, a completely separate country, was just not accurate. It was all part of the United Soviet Union. But in 1991, and uh, when Crimea did want to uh, have closer relations with Russia again. And you have to remember, the majority of people living in Crimea were in our uh, people who identified to, with Russia because there were huge um, transfers of Russian peoples into Crimea after the Second World War to fill the space of not only the Tartars, but other peoples who had either been wiped out, like Jews, um, or who had, had fled. Now, the American Pew Research Survey Council, uh, not a, a couple of years ago, found out, did a, a survey which said that 63% of the uh, inhabitants of Crimea favored reunion with Russia. This number can, of course, be disputed. Eleanor Knott, in Open Democracy, criticized it and said, in actual fact, it was only 58%. But whether it's 58% <laughs> or 64%, it's quite clear the majority of the people in Crimea wanted to belong again to Russia. Now, that the Ukrainians are not happy with that is fully understandable. That lots of Tatars whose ancestors were deported, rightly or wrongly, wrongly in many cases, to uh, probably the majority of cases elsewhere in the Central Asian Soviet Union, is also understandable. But nonetheless, in a world in which we, the majority in a democratic state, are considered to um, be able to express their views, um, these views in some way need to be respected. Now, it is not my position. I'm not Crimean, nor Russian, nor Ukrainian. I have no right to make any comment on what happens to Crimea or Ukraine or Russia or anywhere else, which is not my country. So the people who live in these countries are the ones who, for whom the right should be reserved to make these decisions. Yeah, they're, they're all interesting points that uh, not enough people know about. And before we get into kind of the current debates of where the Crimea is in the, in the 20th century, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about the quote-unquote, rehabilitation of the Tatars during the Soviet period, especially when Gorbachev took over and that commission that Gromyko uh, headed, and the current position was as far as where the Tatars are in the Crimea today, including demographics. There is no question that the torments the, the Tatars went through in the deportations were ghastly. And the Tartars were not deported after trials. Those who supported the Nazis were deported, and those who supported the Soviet Union were allowed to stay. No, they were all deported. So there's no doubt that the Tartars as a people were brutally persecuted in the deportation to Central Asia. The reason being that no distinction was made between those who were pro-Nazi and those who were pro-Soviet and those whose families laid down their lives for the Tartar, for the Soviet Union. That was truly a, a monstrous deportation. But in the, uh, they, uh, many Tartars then returned 
to Crimea, as you said, in the end of the Soviet Union and thereafter. And um, Russia, the Russian government, obviously is doing its best uh, in certain respects to weave the Tatars, uh, some of them, into the modern region of Crimea, which has now come under their sovereignty again, uh, de facto, if not de jure. And um, therefore, what you have is you have those Tartars, possibly a majority, who are not happy. But you have to remember the Tartars are very small, a small percentage of the total inhabitants of Crimea. And whilst they've lived there for centuries, since the 1400s, others like Armenians, Greeks and Jews lived there even earlier. So the point is not to go back and say whoever lives there earliest has a right. It's really, I would have thought now, the best solution is to bring together all the peoples of Crimea to find uh, an, uh, a happy solution. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an appropriate point and one that unfortunately seems to be easier said than done. And to get into that issue, I think it would make sense to say a little bit about, before we get into what's going on today and where you, where you stand on that, at least, at least in the book, is the exact arrangements that the Russian Federation and the country of Ukraine made over the Crimean Peninsula during the 1990s. Well, uh, basically, putting it in a nutshell, mm. the Russian government, I, I said that Crimea was a separate autonomous region, but of course, Sevastopol was a special case. It had its own identity going back to 1783, because it was Russia's most important military base altogether. You could argue um, a whole range of ideas and threats permeated more from the south into Russia than from through the Baltic and St. Petersburg, despite the fact that it was until uh, after the First World War, the capital of uh, Russia. And so the problem was that um, Russia, once it became part of Ukraine, and it, it did uh, de jure, even if the, m many of the local people were not happy with it, Russia was able to renew for a considerable period of time, its military base at Sevastopol. We all know about what happened in Crimea. We all know about what happened in Maidan and the complexities of these situations. And uh, one thing one can say, uh, in which Crimea was fortunate, did I think the number of people who died during the, let us call them upheavals in Crimea, were something very limited. They were in single figures. And I think some of them even died of heart attacks during the course of the actions. <laughs> so relatively speaking, Crimea did not suffer the violence that took place in Kiev, in Odessa, and in Eastern Ukraine. And for that, one needs to be grateful. Yeah, that, that's true. And it's it's an important point. And at the end of the day, it's it seems like this has taken on a life of its own, the position of where the Crimea should be as far as Ukraine and the Russian Federation. And I was wondering if you had any uh, thoughts on what the appropriate, uh, if, if there's a solution, international solution out there, what it might look like. If one looks back, I'm going to bring up an issue from uh, the Caribbean or two. Grenada. Under Margaret Thatcher, 
a local communist government was elected in Grenada. And the United States was deeply unhappy about this. Now, I'm an American citizen as well as a British national. So I feel unlike the situation in Russia and Ukraine that I'm able to give you my opinions more on my own values in this. Okay. And as an anti-communist, I felt the United States' Monroe Doctrine, in particular with respect to communism, is justified. If a communist government erupted in Grenada, why shouldn't the United States send in its forces and crush it, which it did, without even telling Margaret Thatcher, its closest ally? And it succeeded. The Monroe Doctrine, everybody knows, means that uh, foreign, particularly European powers, cannot set up an, a, a new extensions of their own states in the Americas. Everyone knows that if in Mexico or in Canada, Russia were to get involved in setting up um, some sort of state in opposition to the United States, there would be great horror. And with reason, I fully understand it. The United States must defend its integrity and not permit a communist takeover on its borders. Now, what I feel was a great mistake of the European Union was to somehow voice greedy eyes on Ukraine. That isn't to say that people in Ukraine, if they so wished, um, should not uh, attempt much closer relations with the European Union. Of course, they, uh, as a sovereign nation, should be able to do so. But nobody can, no country can escape its geography. If the European Union and other countries created the impression to Russia, where after all, uh, the Soviet Union had lost thir uh, up to 34 million people in the Second World War, as close to half a million in Britain, half a million in the United States, one needs to be aware that a Russian sense of, uh, of this incredible death toll is going to make them wary of any threats to their borders. And therefore, it seems to me that people in Europe should have been far more sensitive to what was happening I mean, in, in um, Russia and in, in Ukraine, that you create a situation in which there is harmony, not one in, I mean, Finland is a wonderful example. Finland in the post-war years was a bridge between the Soviet Union and the West. And after the horrors of the Second World War, that is the winter war and the continuation war in, between Finland and Russia, there were there was no violence there was peace and people should have stro striven to make ukraine a bridge and crimea a bridge between russia in its post-soviet form and uh, europe and elsewhere and unfortunately that opportunity was lost one excellent vehicle could have been the russian church because the ukrainian church historically and canonically as accepted by all of the churches of um uh, connected to the ecumenical patriarch in constantinople and so on 
um, recognize the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as being under the auspices of the Patriarch of Moscow. Now, two um, bodies of churches have broken off, broken off in the in the nineties from Moscow and established their own non-canonical Orthodox churches. Now, it is not my place to can, uh, uh, intervene in any of this, but it seems to me that the church with its message of peace, and I've heard Metropolitan Hilarion, the representative of the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church abroad, saying that the fault in the conflict is on both sides, and both sides um, must come together in Christian unity to establish a, a harmony. Um, but then, I, as I understood it, he wasn't allowed to go into Kiev. Now, it seems wow. to me that is not the polarization within the church is not a way forward. The church should create a bridge of harmony and Ukraine should be a bridge. There is no doubt the far west of Ukraine formerly belonged to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and had lots of Catholics, still does, whereas the east was almost exclusively Russian Orthodox. But again, I can only emphasize from my own view, uh, point as an historian and as in, uh, not being a citizen of these places, of the need for avoiding confrontation and carrying out provocative acts. Russia is going to have a sense of threat, bearing in mind what it endured over the last few hundred years. And one can't just ignore it. There's no point in saying Ukraine and Crimea have nothing to do with Russia. They do. And you can't pretend otherwise. One, I mean, if you do, of course you can insist on it and say Russia has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Ukraine, just as so you can say what happens in Mexico or Cuba has nothing whatsoever to do with the United States. But you are not going to go down the path of harmony and peace. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I haven't heard, I mean, I've read widely on the subject. You're one of the first that I've heard say something about the world religion and bridging the gap. I think that's an interesting point and sometimes overlooked. I mean, just diplomatic historians are interested in sanctions and power and formal stuff. I think that that's, that's an interesting point. Well, I have to add here, there have been threats to confiscate monasteries under, uh, as it were, of the canonical Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which are under the Patriarch of Moscow because of this nationalist political uh, agenda. Now, I'm not saying by any means that those who belong to the nationalist Ukrainian Orthodox Church shouldn't have the freedom to carry out whatever uh, religious beliefs and organization they want, but to go and then co try to coerce and confiscate a canonical church's property and territory is not the way forward within a Christian no. body in Eastern Ukraine. Some Ukrainian Orthodox Church under Moscow have been killed. Yeah, I, I don't even know. I mean, I know a little bit about it, but it's, it definitely sounds interesting. And it, and it sounds like something you might uh, touch upon in your future work about uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. So that would be it's a, it's, um, a fascinating subject.
Absolutely. And once again, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. You've given us a lot of information and a lot of food for thought. Uh, but before we go, I was wondering if you could maybe add a little bit more to what your future scholarship endeavors might be beyond uh, maybe your book on the Russian Orthodox Church. Well, I'm, I'm very interested in focusing on the Ottoman Empire, on Russia, and on this whole um, volcanic earthquake-like fault line that runs from the Arctic all the way down into the Middle East. And I think the issues that were present 300 years ago, we see now, whether it's conflicts within Islam, between Islam and Christianity, with um, uh, uh, between um, various uh, nationalist movements and so on, all these issues are very much with us now. And we see that the old-fashioned Wilsonian approach to one nation, one state, is not viable in that part of the world. In my view, Wilson, President Wilson, who was a very kind man, uh, a very learned academic, failed to understand that long-term solutions in Eastern and Central Europe and the Middle East were not those solutions which had been found for North America and Western Europe. And therefore, we have to re-establish what are going to be the mechanisms of state, of religious administration, of peoples in parts of the world in which there is no consensus of values, as there would be in Omaha, Nebraska, for example, <laughs> or in Basingstoke in England. And that is, I don't have an easy answer. That is something we must try to achieve. And my view is that uh, some of the best messages for peace and harmony are those um, contained within Christian teaching and even some elements of Islamic teaching, of Jewish teaching, but uh, not those views propagated by extremists but those who generally uh, take in their hearts a, a Christian message that one needs to show love for one's fellow human beings and not bash them over the head or behead them or hang them. That's my view. It's a, yeah, it's a very appropriate message and very, very well taken. And once again, thank you for speaking with me. I've taken a lot of your time, but I would tell the listeners if they want to get an easy to read, this is a relatively short book that you can pick up, that you can you know, take on a plane or wherever you do and read and really inform yourself about the history of Ukraine and the, the history uh, behind the current problems. I would recommend this wholeheartedly. And we didn't mention it in the interview, but there's lots of stuff we didn't get into about that are just as fascinating about the deportations that the Tatars were not the only people deported uh, in 1944, which a lot of people I don't think know about in American history to the population transfers of Christians and Muslims between the, the Crimea and parts of the Ottoman Empire, or back and forth between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire. It's a very interesting part of the book. Well, and this is not in the book, but um, in the late 19th century, when the um, Bulgarian, within the Ottoman Empire, when the Bulgarian church tried to break away from the um, ecumenical Greek patri patriarch, 
and to have its own patriarch still under Ottoman rule. And the Ottoman government accepted that. Um, some individuals had their eyes gouged out, their tongues cut off by opposing Orthodox communities within the Orthodox fold. So <laughs> one has to say there is unfortunately amongst Muslims and amongst Christians and uh, other ethnic groups, a tradition of extraordinary violence and brutality when a toxic mix of religion and politics takes precedence over what is actually the Christian message of love and harmony. Absolutely. And on that note, uh, once again, I'd like to thank you and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you.